All right, we're continuing in First Thessalonians this morning. Turn with me to chapter 5. Starting in verse 12. Yes, the kids are dismissed for Sunday school. Starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, that it is true, that it is authoritative, that it is for us, that it speaks the words of eternal life. And God, let us hear from you today through your word. Speak to our hearts. We ask that you would mold us and shape us, form us into what you want us to be. We thank you, God, that you are good to us, even as the song we sang uh, just moments ago. You truly are a good father. We thank you that we are blessed to be your children. In spirit, we ask you to continue to be here with us, to continue to fill us, continue to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to your word. Amen. We're going to look at uh, two of these verses today, the first two verses that I just read, Uh, but I wanted to give you the the broader context of this uh, section because we're actually looking at congregational responsibility in this section. The first two verses talk about our responsibility as members toward the pastor. The second section, verses 14 and 15, talk about our responsibility toward one another as members. And then 16 through 22 actually address our responsibility regarding worship. So today we're going to look at the section on the pastor. Uh, This section is actually a great example of why um, expository preaching can be beneficial One of the things when you talk about expository preaching, it kind of has two aspects to it when you talk about the definition of expository preaching. A lot of times people think that means you're going like verse by verse through the text, which is part of expository preaching. But it's also making sure that like the main point of the text is the main point of what you're emphasizing uh, in that particular teaching or sermon. One of the reasons that's beneficial is because when you're working through a text verse by verse, it uh, forces... Uh, me, the pastor, to have to make sure that I deal with certain things that maybe just in my normal, regular study, I might not come across. 
It also forces a pastor to make sure that he doesn't get into a rut of preaching and kind of focus on his um, particular hobby horses that he might have. So when you come to a section like this, uh, there's certain texts that might be less comfortable or topics might be less comfortable for a pastor to talk about, like texts on giving, um, even maybe particular sins, which I don't think we really, um, I don't really have as much of an issue, but some pastors might be less in, inclined to talk about particular uh, sins. But when you come across them in the text and when you're preaching through it verse by verse, once it's there, you're required to do it. The other benefit is, is that as he's preaching and he preaches on a text and it might apply to you, even if he knows about different things in your life, like he's not calling you out in the particular sermon. He's just being faithful to the text to preach through what it says. Does that make sense? So these first two verses here address how to interact with your pastors. And at the same time, actually, they show the role of pastors. I actually want to focus uh, on the second today, showing the role of pastors. But I want us to notice something here in these, in these verses to begin with. Notice Paul's approach with the Thessalonians. Notice how he talks to them starting in verse 12. He starts out by saying, we ask. We ask you, brothers. So now he could command, and he does command quite often throughout his letters. But notice how he, it's an appeal, basically. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, does he ask in the remaining verses that we read? No, I mean, those are pretty straightforward uh, admonishments and commands that he gives. 16, rejoice always. 17, pray without ceasing. 18, give thanks in all circumstances. 19, do not quench the spirit. 20, do not despise prophecies. 21, test everything. Hold fast. I mean, he's just giving it straight imperatives, straight commands, straight orders. But in the beginning, as he's addressing these final things and instructions to them, he appeals to them. Why, why does he do that here? Well, one, it could be helpful as a transitional device because he just had been talking about the day of the Lord, so he kind of wants to shift into a different direction. That's good. That, that, that's part of it. But second, um, it, it's kind of a warmer in friendlier tone. So he's kind of prepping them for the last little part that he wants to give. Uh, and, and, and he wants to continue being gracious. So it's kind of like a soft appeal than a, maybe a heavy-handed command. Which really, as, as you know, if you've been here hearing the sermons, that fits really well with the tone of First Thessalonians. It's very warm, very gracious, very uh, uh, commending. But let's pause for a moment, and let's just think about that, because uh, different situations that we have in our own lives call for different approaches to those situations, right? And a lot of times, I think, uh, if we're not careful, we have a, maybe we have a very A-type personality, and, we, and this, this is the way we're going to deal with every single situation. Or maybe we have a B-type, more laid-back personality, and this is the way we're going to deal with every type of situation. That's actually not a good approach. There's, there's certain times where we need to be more A-type and a little bit more straightforward and a little more blunt, and there's other times where maybe we need to be more B-type and more, a little more laid back and a little kind of, you know, take the sandpaper and, and round those corners a little bit and take the roughness off of it. Uh, a softer approach is sometimes called for. Sometimes people are like, oh, that, that's just the way I deal with things. 
Well, that needs to change. Different situations, different scenarios, and different people involved in those call for various approaches. Uh, parents, I mean, even think with your own kids. Certain kids, you probably, you know, take different approaches with them. Even with that one particular kid, you know, different scenarios and situations might call for you to address them in those situations even differently. Sometimes more straightforward, sometimes more gracious. So Paul doesn't say in this passage uh, to be kind to people and how you approach them. Uh, he, he doesn't say that. He's not, he's not, but we actually just observe it in his wording, right? So he's not saying, hey, I want you to be kind in how you approach No, by his example and his wording, we can see that we need to be gracious at times in how we approach people instead of just giving them the, the straight-up hard news. That's how he approaches the, Th- the Thessalonians here. But I want us to remember something. Remember what Paul's doing here. I mean, this Thessalonian church is, is weeks, months at the most old, and he's trying to help create a culture in this church. He's trying to help create a culture in this church. And every church has cultures. And there are certain cultures uh, that we've, we've developed and, and fostered in this church. Well, well Paul's trying to do that as well. And he's asking himself, like, what, what do I want the culture of the Thessalonian church to look like? One of the, the hints that we can see from that is in verse 12, he, he uses the term brothers. It's the 12th time he's addressed the Thessalonians as brothers. Now, uh, <clears throat> they had a word back then that whenever they used the word uh, Adelphoi, that meant brothers and sisters. We don't really have a term like that in English. When we talk about mankind, we kind of include womankind in there. You know, mankind includes women. Back then, when they would have used the term Adelphoi, brothers, it would have included sisters. It's kind of a little bit harder uh, for us to, to wrap our minds around that because we just don't have a general term for saying brothers, maybe siblings, but that would be kind of awkward uh, to our ears reading this. But that's about as close maybe as you could, as you could get. But this is the 12th time that he's used language of the family. And he's going to use it actually a couple more times before the letter ends. Um, Think of some of the other words that Paul has used. Beloved. He's used the term children. He's even compared uh, his work as a nursing mother. He's used the term father. He's used the term uh, orphaned. So we see this familial language. Friends, in in a church, you need these type of bonds. As you face pressure from the world, you want to have a culture of family, that we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. As you face pressure even potentially from extended family, maybe unbelievers, they could be believers, you want bonds inside the church that are strong, that are healthy that are uniting. And what more so than language like this that talks about family, because that's what we are. So when you you see your brother across the way, or you see your sister across the way, I mean, it's not just like, oh, that's Chuck over there, or that's Julie over there, and and she's my friend. No, that's my brother. That's my sister. That's the culture that a church needs to have. Familial. And that helps keep 
and that promotes unity in the community. It's a true story. I just read this recently. Uh, I knew man, a man was looking for a new church, um, and he saw this church plant was starting, so he called the number, and he actually got to talk with uh, the pastor that was starting the church. And he didn't mention his age, but the pastor uh, said to him, we, we are focused almost solely on people between the ages of 20 to 40. He said, you are welcome to attend, but you won't have a place. Now, that, that's not scriptural at all. Uh, <clears throat> I can understand potentially wanting some energy as you start your church, uh, but when you talk about age ranges in the church, you know, as a pastor, you want, you want to pour into the new as well as to the old. Uh, you, you get energy with the youth, right? But, but you get wisdom with, with the old. You, you might get passion with the youth, but you get steadiness and resilience with the old. So a church of just young people, uh, they can be blown about by just about every wind of doctrine if, it, if they're not careful, because they're not anchored yet. They're not anchored. Of course, a church of just old people, what, what, what can happen there? I mean, they can come complacent and fizzle out. Oh, this is just the way we've always done things. Here's the thing, and you probably remember being told this if, if you're my age or, may, or older, you know, I just remember when I was growing up, high school, being told, oh, you know, being impressed upon how much the importance of those older than you and the wisdom that they bring to the table. It probably wasn't until I was about, oh, I'd say 25, if I'm being honest, before I started to realize the truthfulness in that statement. That's when I started to realize it. I didn't fully realize it, but I started to realize it. And I, I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of like it starts to dawn. It, it, those older, they do kind of know something. They do have some good points. And it was probably until about 30, even maybe even a little bit later, that it, it, it dawned on me even more and more and more and the importance and, and the strengths that people older than you. Of course, like the definition of like being old is like, it feels like it's like someone 15 or 20 years older than you or something like that, you know. Because I'm, I'm you know, 44 and I'm like, man, I'm young, okay. But I know all those college students out there are like, no, you're old. <laughs> but all you guys that have uh, 15 years on me, you're like, yeah, you're young, right? It's like a matter of perspective. But that the, the blessing of having older people in the church cannot be overstated. Uh, the, the, truly, the wisdom that is brought to the table from them, the experience, the guidance that they can give, we are truly blessed to have a wide range of ages from infancy, even unborn, all the way up into 70s. We are truly, truly, truly blessed. I encourage the younger folks to tap the wisdom of the older. And I encourage the older to, to see some of the things and be reminded of some of the things that you had earlier in your youth, the passion, the fire, the, and, and let that continue to stir you to continue to walk and go forward with the Lord. When we talk about building the kingdom, though, 
getting back to, to this story, we've got to make sure that when we're building the kingdom, that we're building the kingdom and not, and not our kingdom. And it can be very easy if we're not careful, as dads or moms even, even at our places of employment, that we want to, we want to, build, we want to build our kingdom and not build his kingdom. Uh, even in the church, and probably more so in the church, we have to make sure that we build the kingdom. The kingdom. So that's kind of the backdrop of this passage. And here we see three duties that a pastor has. The first we see is labor. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Now, why this, why this word labor? It has the idea of a strong exertion of physical or mental energy. The idea of striving, struggling, toiling. The idea of engaging in difficult or exhausting labor. And over and over again, when Paul uses this term, he, he uses it like 15 or 20 times in the New Testament. Over and over when he uses this, it, it deals with ministerial labors. And he's either complimenting someone on the work that they've done and how hard it is for the ministry, or he's talking about how he and the other apostles have worked hard for whoever he happens to be ministering to at that point. It highlights the fact that true leaders are those who put forth a great effort in their work for the benefit of the church. First Timothy uses a similar word. It talks about toiling. That's the idea. Now, I've heard many adjectives used to describe the ministry and being in the ministry and easy, tranquil, relaxed, stress-free, laid-back, or not any of them. Whenever Paul uses this verb, he's using it in, in two ways. First, he sometimes uses it when he's talking about the physical work that he did with his hands when he's working with the leather. You know, he was the tent maker, right? Second, it, in regards to the work of the ministry and how it is mentally taxing and physically taxing. Ministry is hard work. Sometimes people are surprised, especially when they first get into ministry, that everything isn't sugar and roses. Um, we've had different interns here throughout the years, and we try to dispel the myth very quickly that everything is sugar and roses. We want them to have a good, healthy taste of ministry and what it involves. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 5, just briefly. It says in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's that word labor. It's the same idea. And um, different people have emphasized different aspects of this, of this, verse, of, of this verse. But I've always, uh, whenever I've read this, the thing that I've always honed in on, on those who labor, like preaching and teaching, you can, you can just preach and teach, and you just kind of you know, throw something together. Uh, but if you want to preach well, if you want to teach well, you've got to labor at it. If you're going to be a pastor, you've got you to labor at it. So those who labor, they're striving, they're working hard, it's, they're putting forth mental energy, they're putting forth physical energy, but they're laboring in preaching and teaching. The faithful minister will work long and hard because of the very nature of his work 
requires it. There's no light work when it comes to hurting hearts. There's no light work when it comes to broken marriages. There's no light work when it comes to human souls. And, 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 and that falls under, under the, the idea of part of his laboring is not just working and working and working and doing his own thing and doing his own thing. Part of his laboring is, is equipping others and, and preparing them to be able to labor, to strive, to struggle, to toil. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the, these, these shepherds and these teachers here, uh, most people think that's actually just uh, two words describing one position, shepherds and teachers. So pastors. These shepherds and teachers uh, are equipping what? the saints, for the work of ministry themselves, for building up the body of Christ. So his job is not to do it all. He's not a one-man show. Now, he, he equips others to serve and use their gifts. Most pastors understand their job will be more than 40 hours a week. But after 50 to 60 hours on a regular basis, you, you'll wear that pastor out if you require his attendance at every meeting, every ministry, every event. It's just not realistic. So he equips others so that they can perform those roles, those positions, and they can perform that ministry. He's not the evangelistic, discipling, administrative, do-it-all. Now, he should model those things, but it's not his job to do all of those things all the time. And some people are like, oh, well, that's why we hired him. Well, then you didn't know what you were doing when you hired him. <laughs> so that's the, the first aspect we see, or the first duty we see of pastors, is this idea of labor. The second is exercising authority. Look back in First Thessalonians 5. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about authority. He's talking about the exercise of authority. And there can be two extremes here because sometimes people hear the word authority or being over someone and, and they get a little nervous or a little scared. So there, there can be two extremes. <clears throat> here and other places, God makes clear that he's placed leaders in the church. And he gives those certain men authority in that particular church. A church can exalt a pastor, invest too much power in him. Some churches almost like treat, treat the pastor like he's like a demigod or something. You know, his word is the word, whether he's preaching from here or just in casual conversation. You know, he says it and we don't question it and we better go along with it. You know, sadly, there's, there's churches like that. You have to get the okay from the leadership on everything and anything. That, that's an abuse of authority. That's spiritual abuse. 
But there's also the other extreme where a church can make the pastor powerless. And you, you have churches where uh, all the power resides in the deacons. And, and they're the ones calling the shots, and they're the ones uh, doing what they want to do. Um, he's not there to lead or guide or exercise any authority. I mean, they might like his preaching, uh, but they don't want anything to extend past the pulpit. And even the pulpit is something that, that the church will keep in check. Uh, friends, a powerless pastor is a fruitless pastor. It's just true. Leadership will always entail authority of some sort. So the pastor wields authority, but, but he does so in a gracious, a kind, a loving manner. He does so in whatever manner the situation calls for. I mean, Jesus, if you think about, had all authority, right? All authority in heaven and on earth, he said, has been given to me. But did he always display and wield that authority all the time, everywhere? No, he really didn't. Now, he had it. It was at his disposal. What did he say? I could call legions of angels right now. He had the authority. Did he exercise it right then? No. So a, a pastor, he has that authority, but he knows when it's the proper time to wield the authority, when it's the proper time to exercise that authority. Sometimes he has to be strong in a situation and deal with it straight on. Sometimes he has to be gentle and gracious. Look at Philemon. We see a, a similar thing going on in Philemon. So here Paul is writing. He's writing to, to Philemon, and he says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So, I mean, what, I mean he's, he says it straight out. Look, I could tell you to do it. I, I'm going to ask you to do it. He's got the authority, but he, but he doesn't want to exercise it in this situation regarding Philemon and Onesimus. So he says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. That's the idea. It's, and it's the same verbiage that he uses here that he actually uses when he's talking to the members about loving and esteeming the leaders in their church. That's the same approach. So it's not an endless or a boundless authority. It has limits. It's only those things which fall under the purview of the church. But here's the thing. Great teaching is going to be authoritative. Great teaching is going to be authoritative. You can't have one without the other. If you want someone faithful to the word, then he'll exercise the authority God has given him. And don't try to stop him. That shackles the word. That waters down the word. And some of this might grate on some of your ears. Some people have issues with authority. But if you have an issue with an authority, uh, look, every, every single person is under some type of, of human authority. Everyone. If you have an issue with authority, that likely reveals something more about your heart than it does about the authority. Because God has placed us under authority. He's placed us under authority. In the home, at the church, at work, 
in, in, in society, we are under authority. We can try to be outside of authority. It doesn't work. We're under authority. And here's the thing. Authority is given to guard, to protect, and to help flourish. I mean, think of Adam in the garden with Eve. I mean, you know, what was one of his roles, right? Guard, protect, flourish. How did Paul wield the authority entrusted to him? Guard, protect, flourish. So that's the idea when we talk about exercising authority. Uh, Someone who's seeking the Lord, who's righteous and walking in holiness before him, is going to be wise in the way he exercises that authority. Thirdly, we see the idea of admonishment. He says towards the end of verse 12, uh, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Are you open to the admonition of your pastor? What does admonishment involve? Well, maybe at the basic level, it's instruction and teaching, but usually that word means uh, more than just basic instruction or teaching. It usually involves correction or counsel, giving advice, even warning and rebuke. Let's look at a couple examples. Acts 20. This is Paul talking to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian elders, and he says in verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I mean, and what did that include? I mean, he was with the church at Ephesus for three years. What did that include? I mean, yes, it included instruction. Yes, it included uh, teaching. But it included Counsel. It included giving advice. It included warning them. It included rebuking them. That's what he does in, in the book of Ephesians. You can see him doing that at times. Same thing we see in Colossians chapter 1. Turn there. It says in verse 28, <clears throat> Him we proclaim. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So that word warning, that, that's that word admonishment. That's that same Greek word. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then look what he says in verse 29. For this I toil. That's the hard work word that we just looked at. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay? So part of that work, right, is, is the admonishing. And, and here the ESV translates it warning. That's part of the admonishing, the warning, the rebuke. You know, pastors have a variety of challenges they face. This isn't the place where I'll, I'll list um, all of those challenges. But one I will mention, by way of analogy, have you ever tried to... Uh, Figure out your spouse. Like what their needs are, what they're dealing with, where they're at emotionally, what they're going through. Have you ever tried to do that with your kids? Which one's harder? (laughs) Try doing that like with a whole congregation of people. 
That's challenging. That is very challenging. Because you're trying to figure out where however many people, 50, 60, 100 or more, and what their needs are, where they're at, what they're dealing with. And each of us individually has enough challenge just doing that with our spouse or our kids. So one way you could help your pastor is by letting him know what your needs are and how he can help. We got back from our, uh, from our vacation uh, to Florida last Saturday night, and we had kind of planned on, on swinging by um, Chipotle. That's one of our favorite restaurants. So we ordered it ahead of time so it'd be ready to go because we'd been in the, the minivan for like 13 hours, so we just wanted to get the food and go. So we walk in, or I, I walk in there uh, to get the food, and uh, it's not ready. So I like pull out my email to check, like, when did it say it was going to be ready? It said it was going to be ready at 8.40. It's like 8.50 right now. So I'm like, okay, I'll give them a couple minutes. Uh, so it's like 8.50, 8.51, 8.52, 8.52. And there's this other uh, young lady is standing there. She's waiting too. And so then it, like, it hits 8.54, and, I could, and she kind of like, I could tell she positions herself because she's going to be like, hey, where's my food at? <clears throat> so I ask her, I'm like, oh, what time is your food supposed to be ready? And she's like, 8.55. <laughs> I'm like, oh, mine's supposed to be ready at 8.40. And she kind of like, you know, drops her head like, yeah, I'm going to be waiting a bit longer. And I'm like, you know, we just got, we just got back from Florida. We've been driving all day. And she's like, Florida? She's like, I just moved up here from Florida. So we start having this little conversation, and, and she mentions something I, uh, about her church, and um, she keeps using this term oneness. Oh, I go to this oneness church. I go to this oneness church. And so, um, and, and I realize that she's uh, a oneness, after talking with her for a little bit, she's a oneness Pentecostal. They don't believe in the Trinity. So, you know, we're, we're making some small talk, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, like, get around to to more focusing on that because that's kind of a big issue right well her order my order comes up and 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 so i kind of take off and and i'm telling you i went home that night and i just it was eating me up inside that i had this conversation with this young lady and did not in some way try to uh admonish her either warn or correct or challenge or or do something but it 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 bothered me that i had not tried to take advantage of that opportunity and I slept I just slept horrible that night and all I could think about was how I had kind of blown that opportunity with this young lady who who doesn't believe in the Trinity and then I ended up having this horrible nightmare about I was trapped in some church that believed like all this false heresy I and I literally physically couldn't leave the church it was just a bad night's sleep so I like wake up the next day and I'm like Lord like and she was there just to be, she was there actually, she was, um, she, she was doing some side jobs, so she was doing DoorDash, so she was actually picking up food to take to someone else. I was like, Lord, like, I'll probably never see that girl again, so I, I like prayed for her throughout the whole day, but I'm like, if there's any way, like, put me in her path again, and I will say something to her. <clears throat> and so, um, because I like Chipotle, I was there like three days later. <laughs> and so I'm back at Chipotle, and I walk in, and, and, Lo and behold, there she is, standing over in the corner, waiting for her food, or for the food that she was going to take to whoever. And so I go over there. She recognizes me. I remembered her name, so I was like, hey, what's going on? And I'm like, man, I, 
I don't know how long she's been here. I don't know when her food's going to be ready. Like, I don't have time to, like, just chit-chat and try to circle and then go in, you know. So, and there's, like, now there's, like, a lot of people. So I'm like, this is going to be really awkward. There's all these people standing around. Before, it was just kind of like her and me having this little conversation. So I'm just like, okay, here we go. I'm like, you remember how you, you know, mentioned you were kind of like oneness, Pentecostal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I just had a question for you. Um, you know, Jesus, when he's praying in the garden, he, he's praying and he's like, uh, he's praying to the Father, and he's like, not my will, but yours be done. Because the oneness Pentecostals, they'll actually say that Jesus is God, but they just say there's one person acting in different modes. Okay? So one person, one God. Trinity, three persons, one God. So I'm just like, so I was like, Jesus was like, not my will, but yours be done. I'm like, that's kind of interesting to me. How, how would you explain that? Because if, if one person has two wills, that seems really weird to me and doesn't really jive. And she's like, huh. She's like, you know, I've kind of wondered that myself. <laughs> and she's like, I'm trying to, re-, and because she's going to school, she's like, I'm trying to remember how my, how my professor would explain that. I'm like, well, I just think it's a, it's a good question that I think you kind of need to chew on and struggle a little bit with. Because like that, you know, God is just, he is one. That's what you're saying. But this seems to indicate pretty clearly there's two wills. And that would indicate two persons. Uh, and right as that, it was actually a, a pretty short conversation, because as that ended, then her food came up. Um, I was like, hey, you know, we have this college group, she's in college, you know, you should check it out. I gave her the name of the church. So hopefully she'll follow up. Um, something needed, to, I, I share that in part, one, it was cool that God worked that out. I kind of blew that first opportunity I felt. And like, what were the chances of me being back at Chipotle the same night she's doing a DoorDash? But I felt like something needed to be said. Whether in that situation it was a teaching or an instruction or counsel or advice, just putting a stone in her shoe, to, something for her to have to kind of struggle and think about. Um, but, but I was in that situation not as a pastor. I never even mentioned I was a pastor. In fact, I usually don't. It changes the tone of conversations. Um, I was just in that, in that role as a believer. Just as a believer. And, and the pastor's job is not to handle all situations like that. The pastor's job is where he's equipped the body to handle situations like that, to take those opportunities, to step out and, and, and be bold and to say something. Friends, God has established his church. Amen? He's established his church. He's set up an order in his church. And part of that is pastors that oversee the church. In fact, they're called overseers a couple times in the New Testament. Titus calls them overseers. First Peter calls them overseers. Other places were told that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With who is the cornerstone? Christ. All right? Christ is the cornerstone. Back in the, in the early 20th century, uh, the guy that was over the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, uh, they were being, uh, they were kind of getting some fresh blood in there, and, and one of the young guns was like, you know, we just need to get rid of all this religious instruction. Like, that's kind of like old school, and, and, and the new path forward really doesn't include religion in our country or probably just about any country. But, but the guy who oversaw it, his name was Lord Reith, he stood up and he said, 
the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. God has established his church. And it's not going anywhere. It will be here until the end of time. And even then, it will continue on. And he has given it an order with pastors and deacons, with members. And, and, and all of those come together to form that community, a familial community. Yes, the pastor has a role where he's laboring and he's exercising authority and he's admonishing. But the members, which we'll look at next week in part, I mean, they have a role too. But every person has a position. Okay? It's like baseball. Maybe you're first base, maybe you're second base, maybe you're third base, maybe you're the catcher, maybe you're the pitcher. But everyone has a position and there no one sits on the bench. Okay? Well, we don't have any, any bench players. Everyone's got a position and they're out there on the diamond playing a role. Everyone's in the batting order and coming up to bat. Okay? Sometimes we're going to hit singles, doubles, occasionally triples, home runs. We're going to strike out too. But, but we're in the game. And we're on the same team. And we're working, we're working together for God's glory. We're working together to further His kingdom. We're working together as a community. When we do that, that speaks volumes to other believers and it speaks volumes to a dying world. They will know us through our actions. They will know us by the love that we have for the Lord and for one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the establishment of your church, for ordering it the way you see fit, for giving us pastors, for giving us deacons, Lord, we want a church here that reflects your heart. And we want a church that seeks to build your kingdom, not our own. And we want a church that it is equipped to do whatever you might call us individually or as a whole to do. So we ask that you would do that, Lord, in us, through us, and by us, God. Thank you for your spirit who makes it possible. Thank you for your grace and mercy that when we strike out, we can press on, we can go on because of what you've done for us. Have your way with us, Lord, and have your way with this church for your glory.